So Exodus 12:29 is where we're starting. Um, so today's message title is Define the Relationship, or Defining the Relationship. And um, one of the things in our culture, and especially in younger um, uh, people, uh, maybe millennials, I guess you could say, is this, this idea of define the relationship, or it's even called DTR. And we're going to be talking about what does it mean. Um, so maybe you start out by uh, that you meet each other. Um, and so typically this is a romantic relationship. And so you meet each other and you start spending some time together and you're kind of friends and you're getting to know each other. And then um, from there, you might start hanging out more and more. And so we're, uh, maybe the label or whatever um, is that we're just hanging out. Um, there's no pressure. You're kind of, um, uh, you know, you're friends, but you're kind of interested in each other. We're hanging out. And then there's a certain point in time in the relationship when you say, okay, so I want to know are, are we an item? Are we dating? Are we serious? Are we, uh, like, what's going on in the relationship? Again, like I said, the millennials call it DTR, define the relationship. I want to know where this is headed. Now, uh, so Amy and I, uh, we were on track for a very difficult and rocky DTR conversation um, right before our first date. And so Amy uh, was ready to find out where the relationship was headed um, before we even had ice cream. All right, so uh, I, uh, Amy and I have known each other since first grade, and uh, we grew up together. We've been friends for a long time, um, but I asked her out when we were 16, and we went to Baskin-Robbins for our first date. Um, and uh, so I even asked her dad, I was like, hey, I, I want to date your daughter. Um, can, can we... Uh, is that okay with you? And so she knew that it was coming because I had talked with her dad, but um, uh, it was uh, definitely something where I was thinking, in my family, um, we kind of uh, get things like college and all that kind of stuff squared away, and then you start talking about marriage. So I was thinking about a long time of dating. And Amy, her brother and her sister, met their spouse, and nine months later were married. And so... Um, uh, I didn't really think this through and didn't realize the pressure situation that I was walking into here is that 16 years old and before Amy turns 17, she's wanting a ring on it. So um, now uh, what she did... Um, uh, fortunately do is she talked to her mom. She's like, mom, I don't, I want to know if, you know, what is serious? Does he want to marry me? All this kind of stuff. 16 year old Amy. Okay. So, so I want you to know that she's dealt with a lot of crazy on my end. All right. But here's a little glimpse into the crazy that I've dealt with. I know you guys don't believe me that there's any crazy coming from the other direction, but there is a little. So, uh, so she asked her mom and her mom says, do not bring up marriage on your first date. Uh, wisely so. Thank you, Anita, for, uh, for blessing us with that. So Amy is really excited to define the relationship really quickly, but um, it was a good thing that we took our time. But the reality was that in our minds, that Amy and I already knew where we were headed before we ever went to Baskin-Robbins, uh, that both of us... Um, could see marrying each other, and then God continued to open those doors in that path uh, towards that. Um, but uh, the define the relationship talks 
happened much later, right? <laughs> I mean, like two weeks later or something like that. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> um, so what we're going to be seeing here in Exodus at this point, and actually it's been happening all along, but uh, this is our last sermon in this series that, uh, that Chris has been taking us through, is that God's been defining his relationship with his people all the way through. But we're really hitting kind of the apex of it where he's really starting to move past, okay, we're friends, you know me and I know you now. We're starting to hang out together. We're starting to build some trust and have some deep conversations to it's time. We're going to talk about who you are and who I am. And so, um, so that's what we've been seeing in this journey. Um, and that's really part of what the Passover is about is this idea of defining the relationship. And so the whole picture of Exodus, where we've been moving, is Exodus is, um, if you think of it in terms of Star Wars, then you've got Genesis is the new hope. There's, uh, you know, some of that with, uh, maybe we try and ignore that there is maybe some prequels in the first three chapters that happened. Uh, But then you've got Exodus, which is the empire striking back. So this is uh, an important part of the storyline. They do kind of stand alone, but they're very inextricably connected, all right? And so, so Exodus is coming off of Genesis in that we're in Egypt. Um, people have been there because of Joseph, a guy from Genesis. But then what ends up happening is they end up being enslaved by a king that doesn't remember Joseph. Uh, and really what it comes down to is that both the people, and uh, the Israelite people and the king uh, or Pharaoh, um, uh, don't remember Joseph, and really it's, uh, it's another way of saying that they don't know God, that they've forgotten God as well. Um, and so um, the king or Pharaoh that Joseph knew, knew God um, because he knew of him through Joseph, whether or not he was a believer. Um, and, and we're at this point now where nobody knows God anymore. The people of God, his chosen people, Abraham's descendants, don't know God. And so throughout Exodus, it's this process and this journey of, of God reintroducing himself to a people that he's pursuing, reintroducing himself to these people for the sake of introducing himself to the world. And so, um, so basically, we have in chapter 4, uh, and, and a little bit earlier and a little bit later, we have God introducing himself to Moses and introducing himself to his people. He, uh, you remember, I am. Uh, who shall I say? Uh, send me, uh, tell him, I am that I am. Um, and so God tells them his name. He's introducing them. They're getting to know each other. Um, and he identifies himself for the people to remind them by saying, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and of uh, Jacob or Israel. And so um, we see him doing that. We see him making promises that he's going to deliver. Um, and so he's introducing himself as somebody that is going to be a promise keeper. And we also see that he starts to show who he is in distinction of all other gods. And so one of the things that we see in an early relationship is... Uh, um, uh, is especially if uh, if that relationship, uh, like if the the people in that relationship are more uh, prone towards kind of like dating around or uh, that kind of stuff, is uh, that there's uh, there's no distinction in, in other people, right? So 
if you're kind of dating three other people, then it's like, yeah, I'm kind of interested in this, these three other people. There's no distinction. They're just kind of all um, people that I'm interested in. Um, but when you start becoming exclusive in this defining the relationship moment, this is, uh, this is saying that uh, uh, that that person is distu- distinguished apart from all other people. There's something about that person that distinguishes themselves. And God does that through the plagues. So we see God distinguishing himself in powerful ways by saying, so you think you worship this river God? Well, I'll turn that river God to blood and everything in it's going to die. I am in control of the river. You think that you worship this sun God? I'm going to black out the sky, but I'm going to let light shine on my people um, because I am in control of the sun. Uh, you think that you worship this frog god? Well, I'm going to let frogs be so out of control that you can't even handle it. And when it's all said and done, there's going to be piles of corpses of frogs so that you know that I am distinguished above and beyond and far uh, so much greater than all these other gods of Egypt. And so God is gradually and effectively and very decisively and powerfully distinguishing himself from the Egyptian gods gods, and most of all from Pharaoh himself, who thinks of himself and calls his people to worship him as God. And that's really where the plagues come in. And so we see him defining himself, revealing himself, his people starting to respond to him him for who he is. And then we end up in Exodus chapter 12, um, which Chris uh, talked about pretty uh, extensively last week about the Passover and about um, uh, about the whole uh, uh, feast, but as well as what was happening in specific with the angel of death and the Lord um, guarding the doors of those that had the blood of the lamb um, and not permitting uh, that uh, agent of death into their homes. Um, So that's where we pick up in the story. Um, We will not finish all of Exodus today, I promise you. (laughs) We're not going to do that, but we are going to read through chapter 12, and then later on we'll get into part of chapter 13. Um, But then uh, we'll talk about some highlights of what comes later in Exodus. Um, But if you'd like to, uh, you can read with me in Exodus chapter 12. Follow along with me in verse 29 is where we're starting. This is the word of the Lord. It says that at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then Moses summoned uh, then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, uh, go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, take your herds, and as you have said, be gone and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out from the land in haste, for they had said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for uh, for they had asked of the Egyptians for silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. 
And the people of, the, of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, and uh, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they, had thrust, they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived was, in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all of the host of, of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. Um, it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel kept it, and a stranger uh, uh, shall keep it. And if a stranger shall sojourn uh, with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord, let all of his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat it. There shall be one law for the native and one for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of, of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. And Father, we thank you for your word. And we just ask that as we um, consider uh, closing up this time in studying your word in Exodus, uh, that you would reveal to us uh, different things by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would convict us and help us to grow in faith um, as we stand before you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, one of the first things that I want to do is just point out a few uh, thoughts about what's going on in this passage that we've just read. And so the first thing that's kind of interesting about this passage is the plunder of Egypt. So we have uh, what we talked about last week, that the angel of death comes and he strikes down uh, everyone in Egypt, their firstborn uh, of any, any type of person, whether they're slave or free, um, uh, even their livestock, the firstborn. And so the angel of death does that. Um, the Lord protects anyone who has the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. And so um, God distinguishes between people who are not his and people who are his in this moment. Um, but following that, it says the Egyptians are really excited about getting the Israelites out of Egypt at this point. It's kind of like, okay, this has gotten bad enough. Um, uh, the Egyptians were ready for them to leave, but then God keeps on hardening Pharaoh's heart, and um, and Pharaoh uh, chooses to um, to maintain his uh, subjugation of the Israelite people, and he keeps on trying to weasel around, um, allowing the people to leave, and so basically we end up with um, uh, 
even Pharaoh saying, go, please go. And then he even expresses a little bit of desperation where he says, please ask your God to bless me. And then, uh, of course, the Egyptian people have been ready for this a long time, ever since hail was falling from the sky and crushing and killing people. Uh, they were saying, please, get them out, get them out, get them out. We want them to go. And so um, what the Lord says um, uh, earlier, what God uh, tells them is that they are going to be basically begging uh, for for you to leave, and that exact thing happens is that God is um, uh, has put them in such a situation that they are leaving not as subjugated runaway slaves but as victorious conquering pillaging people all right so this is the really interesting thing about this um, about the plundering is that not only is God revealing himself as conqueror and as victorious king, lord, and God, ruler all of, over all the universe, but he's not even allowing the Israelites the glory. We're talking about that God has conquered and plundered. Because it wasn't like the Israelites ran into people's houses with their swords and their torches and said, give me all your money. Uh, that's not what happened. They came over like, uh, like Mormon missionaries and came over and said, um, hello, today I'd like to talk to you about giving me all of your silver and your gold. And, uh, and the, all of the Egyptian people did it. Now, I don't know if it was because they had like no proselytizing signs on that and they were like, if we just give them the gold, maybe they'll leave. Um, but uh, what happens is that, that God works beforehand in the hearts of the Egyptians to basically send a message to the entire world, okay? These are the most powerful people on the planet, the Egyptians at this point right now. This is the kingdom. And what God does to defeat the Pharaoh and the kingdom of Egypt <laughs> is, is he does all of these plagues and then he causes his people to be able to plunder the Egyptians by just asking, I mean, this is really, really amazing. So the people end up leaving, not as runaway slaves, but as uh, conquering people who are basically the recipients of the good. So I want you to think in terms of, we've talked about defining the relationship. We're going to be looking at the relationship between the people of God and God himself as a relationship of a husband and of a wife. And so um, in that culture and in that time, so if God is reveal, revealing himself as the husband and then um, Israel is his bride, then um, when God conquers Egypt, to the victor go those spoils, and then God gives the good stuff to his bride. Um, and so, uh, you know, he comes in and conquers and then provides uh, the blessing of that conquering to his people. Um, now, uh, I don't think that this should be something that we stand on um, with any kind of a hint of prosperity in our minds. This is a moment in which God did this to reveal his power and his glory to people all around us. This is not a passage where we can take it and apply to ourselves and say, because I'm with the Lord, he should conquer my enemies and provide me with all kinds of money and gold pouring out my ears. Um, that is not going to happen. That is not what God promises us. In fact, the promise of his people, um, the church will get to soon. Um, uh, the promise of his people, the church, is eternity with him, um, but in this lifetime is a promise of suffering and dif difficulty that leads to glory. 
Um, and so, uh, so what we see in Exodus is God as that conquering, victorious king that, sub, uh, that is leading his bride out of captivity. I want you to think of it like this. This is a fairy tale. And the kick-booty awesome prince has just uh, defeated the dragon he has climbed to the tower and he has rescued his bride from the tower is walking away with the treasure. All right? That's what's happening in this moment. This is a really cool thing that's happening with this just small uh, passage uh, the, of the, Egypt, or the Israelites plundering Egypt. So first thing is that plundering. The second interesting thing that happens in this passage are... Uh, the numbers of people that are leaving in the Exodus. And so there's a lot of different uh, kind of uh, thoughts about what's exactly going on here. But if you look at in uh, verse 37, it says the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth and about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. And then it also talks about this mixed multitude. Um, so uh, there's a few different theories as to how this is possible and a few different theories as to whether the number is literal or symbolic and all those kinds of things. But the, the reality is that we have uh, uh, a group of people that has been subjugated and enslaved. They came down to Egypt with about 75 to 100 people maybe. And so um, they uh, come down to Egypt with that much. And at this point, we're saying 600,000 men, which at low estimates means that they left between 2 and 3 million people leaving Egypt. 2 and 3 million people, okay? That's, uh, what, um, 30 times the size of Yakima, something like that. Um, and so, 20 or 30 times the size of Yakima. Um, and so, we're talking about a lot of people, right? It would be really difficult to take that many people on a camping trip, which is about to happen. Um, and so, uh, we're also going to notice that, how, how many of you have ever been camping? Um, and so, you pack that trunk full of all kinds of provisions and preparations so that you can survive in the wilderness for those few days. And uh, all they packed were a handful of unleavened breads in pots in the, <laughs> the sleeves of their coats. Um, and so, um, so they've booked it out of town. Anyways, um, there are a lot of people on this exodus. What is crazy is that at the beginning of exodus, we see the pharaoh killing all of these boys. And now we have 600,000 of them? Um, so uh, you'd have to mess with the math, but I think it's something like most families having between <laughs> 15 and 30 boys for every generation to be able to make that happen with all of considering all of the death and the slavery and subjugation. Um, and so we're talking about a tremendous amount of repopulation. Now, I have two boys, and my house is crazy all of the time. And so the Lord was blessing them in probably the most insane crazy way. Um, so you can imagine what an Israelite household might have been with like 15 boys. Um, but uh, it, it was crazy time. Um, so um, 
we see this incredible population growth. Now, some of this may have come from that there were other enslaved groups that God may have also chosen to rescue. And so, um, some commentators would say that what we would define as the people of Israel, what God defines as the people of Israel, are his chosen people. And even early on, it's not about bloodlines to Abraham exclusively. That's really important. But if we look later on, he talks about uh, the Passover and how no foreigner can eat it, but if they want to become a part of the people, they can submit to the laws of God, particularly the law of circumcision, and become a part of that people. And so there's indication early on that there were people that had become a part of Israel that maybe weren't even descendants of Abraham. Um, at least maybe not directly. And so, um, so this is a massive group of people. And then we also see in the next verse that there's a mixed multitude that goes out. Um, again, this is about the provision of God. We're talking about a people who has lost a lot over the years. People that have died from the casualties of slavery, from the whipping, the, breeding, uh, the, the beating, the brutality, all of those kinds of things. And then also lots and lots of babies that were murdered. A whole generation of boys that were being murdered even by their own people being drowned in the river. And so God in his mercy seems to be faithful to provide a whole new generation even in the midst of the sin of Egypt and of his own people in their complicit activity with the Egyptians. The other thing that we see um, in this passage is we see this repeated emphasis that the tradition or ritual or symbol um, of the Passover and of the Feast of Unleavened bread, bread is attached to what God did and who he is, remembering this is important, but it's also that it really happened. And so um, what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was is a week-long feast uh, in where uh, people were to remember that God had rescued them from slavery. And how they remembered is that they would eat dough uh, or eat bread that had not risen. So initially the, the bread didn't rise because they didn't put yeast in it. The bread didn't rise because they pulled it out of the oven before it was done cooking. Or they, you know how uh, when you make bread you have to knead it and you have to do some other things to get the yeast to interact so that it will rise before you even start cooking it. And so, um, so literally what they did was they had their, sa their cloaks on they had their belts around their waist, and then they stashed their bowls with this unleavened bread, bread that had not risen yet, in their coats, and they booked it out of there. And so they've got it in some sleeve or some pocket or some hood, hanging a bowl with this uh, unrisen bread that maybe they haven't even baked yet, and then they get out into the wilderness and start cooking and eating it. And, um, and so that's where that comes from, is, is that basically the, the reminder that God led them out of Egypt, as the passage says, with a strong or mighty hand that God leads the people out of Egypt. And so what's happening in the passage is God calling them to remember that it's about remembering, it's about the symbol, but it's also about that this happened. And so, so this actually happened, and so these people are remembered and called to remember the, God, the power of God. Um, 
One of the symbols that rises out of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is this symbol that, that leaven or yeast represents sin. And so this idea of removing sin also became tied in with this Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so God is removing his people from a place where they've, uh, for years, 430 years, they've been engaging in sin and they've been apart from him and he's bringing them into, um, into his fold, into his protection, into his shelter as his people and saying we're removing sin at the same time. And so there's symbolism attached, but it's also something that happened. And the same thing is true with the Passover, though the Passover looks back and also looks forward. But this is also to remember that this happened. And so um, we also uh, see that uh, in, uh, in the passage from 43 on, that Passover, and in Passover, God is really specific about who can participate, not specifically the sons of Abraham, exclusively the sons of Abraham, excuse me, but people who are faithful, obedient, and committed to God. And so we see people um, that, are, um, that are faithfully obeying the command of God. Um, and so Moses... Like uh, Chris uh, preached a message um, several mo- or a, a month or two ago about Moses' unfaithfulness in obeying the commands of God. And so they end up having to circumcise their son um, on the way to Egypt. Um, and his wife ends up doing it because Moses uh, basically is disobedient and unfaithful in this moment. And so, um, so Moses finally walks in faithfulness to God as the first of that people. But then we're going to start seeing more and more people faithfully following and walking with God. Um, and not exclusively Israelites, though for sure uh, Israelites are disp- disp- descendants of Abraham. Um, and so uh, God calls people that um, are going to obey and follow after him. <clears throat> and so all through all of this, this is what God is saying is this is what it is to know me. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to be my people. This is who I am. Right? So we see God pulling this back. Um, so one of the things that I want to look forward at now as we move forward, um, we see uh, that, um, that God is working in his people to reveal some things. Um, in, in chapter 13, uh, we're going to go ahead and read a little bit of that. Um, I believe it's going to be on the screen too. Uh, so 13 verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is to be first uh, to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and a beast, is mine. Now, so this is interesting, um, and I, uh, sorry, Beth, uh, we, we will read a little bit more in just a second, but this is interesting because God is identifying his people, um, and, and he calls his people the first fruits among many nations. He identifies Israel as a firstborn. And so when he's talking about consecrate to me all the firstborn, really what he's doing is asking for the uh, Israelites to participate in what he's already doing in, in, um, in being particularly calling a people who will reveal himself to the world. And so he says, set aside, consecrate, make for my purposes all of the firstborn, just like I've made you, Israel, 
for my purposes. I've set you aside. I've set you apart from all other nations. And so Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. For by a strong hand the Lord brought you from out of this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib uh, you are going... Excuse me, you are going out, and the Lord brings you into, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give to you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, when the son says, Dad, why are we eating this gross bread? I like the rolls mom makes. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, a Canaanites as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart uh, to the Lord all that opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if, it will, if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn among, of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when it, uh, in time you're, uh, to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem." It shall be as a mark on your hand and, or frontlets between your eyes. By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And so God is starting to set aside his people, to consecrate them, to make him his own. Um, and there's uh, some different ways that God reveals himself. And the first that we see um, really in the last passage um, is that, that God reveals to uh, him, his people um, that he is a liberator. And so it says that God delivers the people from the hands of Egypt. So he's a liberator. Um, we also see in this passage that we've read that God is a redeemer. So, the Israelites deserved death just as much as the Egyptians. The Israelites were in sin just as much as the, uh, the Egyptians. Um, but God redeems them by commanding them to sacrifice that, that lamb, that lamb without blemish, um, as a sacrifice. And then he commands, and continuing forward, that they would sacrifice these firstborn animals in their flock as a process of redeeming their firstborn sons, to remind them of the cost of sin, but also to remind them that they were bought with a price. Um, so in some ways, God was like the prince knocking down the tower and defeating the dragon. But in some ways, God was also like the... Um, the good man in the slave market. 
that's buying his people out of subjugation and prostitution. So he's this redeemer. He's one that takes somebody that's broken, takes somebody that's hurting, takes somebody that's drowning in sin, drowning in the casualties of life. And he redeems them. He makes them whole. He renews them. He sacrifices in their place for their good. Um, And we'll get to how he does that in our life. But God also reveals himself moving forward past this passage. Um, If you look forward in uh, in, uh, Exodus, there's another five different ways that God reveals himself. I think it's five. um, uh, That that are, are significant. And so you may have read through Exodus before and you know that God reveals himself to people as a guide because he comes down shortly after what we just read as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He's uh, guiding them through the desert so that they know the way to go. He's lighting their path so that they can see where they're going. And he's uh, communicating his presence with them. So he's guiding them, but he's also reminding them that I don't abandon you. And in fact, you can look ahead if you'd like in uh, Exodus 13 um, uh, and 21 and 22. He says, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God not only is their guide, but he's not, uh, he's not abandoning them. How many of you have ever been on like a hiking trip or some kind of, oh, maybe this is a better example. How many of you have ever had to follow somebody that's driving ahead of you in their vehicle? Um, they said, hey, follow me. I'll show you the way to go. Now, uh, if I was inviting my wife to preach the rest of this sermon, she would preach it on how David needs to learn how to really guide people. Uh, Because I probably drive too fast, I try to roll through yellow lights, and I end up abandoning the person that's following me almost every time. So if you ever need directions to my house, you should just get my address and put it into your smartphone, or you should ask for me to draw you a picture on a piece of paper, because you'll probably get lost if you try and follow me home. Um, Because I am a terrible guide. And the thing is that God is a good and faithful guide that does not abandon his people and say, catch up with me. I know you guys are a bunch of losers that keep on getting freaked out and uh, stubborn and you keep on denying me and you keep on getting confused over all these things. You keep on complaining. And so uh, instead of saying, see you later, I'm going to go over here because I'm tired of dealing with your your garbage. Um, He stays with them. He's faithful to guide them in the midst of all of those things. God stays in their midst. And so he reveals himself as a guide, but also as somebody that's making his dwelling place in their midst. And we can remember that as Christians, that God is, is in our midst by the power of our Holy Spirit. That Jesus says that uh, in John, he says that I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm not leaving you alone. When I go, I'm going to leave you my comforter. That's the Holy Spirit. And he will guide you in all things. And so the Bible, uh, through Jesus... Um, Uh, The Bible says that we will not be left alone, that we do still have that guide. And in fact, that some of you may think, man, it would be really nice if a pillar of fire appeared before a certain business so that I'd know that I need to take that job. 
Or it'd be really nice if a cloud descended down on this person so that I'd know that I was supposed to marry that person. Or it'd be really nice if, um, if I knew uh, whether or not, here's, here's an example for us, River Church, if we're supposed to buy this property or that property because the pillar of fire would just descend down on it and then a cloud would hover up, uh, around it so that we'd get the double whammy of God cloud and God fire and we'd know for sure that that's the thing that we're supposed to do. Um, but the reality is that if we really believe what we believe, we have something better than the cloud and the fire. The Bible says, Jesus says, that the gift of the Holy Spirit is better than this. He says, I'm going, but I'm leaving you something that's better. And, and uh, what he leaves us is the gift of his presence by his Spirit in and with us. And, and we see his spirit as we read his word and his spirit convicts us and reveals truth to us through his word. We see his spirit as he convicts us in prayer and in repentance and confession. We see his spirit as we, as we walk and we experience supernatural things where God calls us and convicts us. But the reality is that that pillar of fi fire and that cloud are not as amazing as... Uh, we have something better. It would have been really cool to see that. I, I shouldn't have said that they're not that amazing. They were, I'm sure, amazing. But we have something better that we're willing to forget about. Um, so he's our guide. He uh, is our protector and our defender. And in chapter 14, we'll see that, that they cross the Red Sea. And you've probably seen this in many epic movies, whether it was the Prince of Egypt or it was uh, Charlton Heston stretching out his uh, big hairy arms and uh, opening up the seas for us. And uh, so we, uh, uh, we can remember this iconic moment. And so God protects his people from the Egyptians. But here's the interesting thing, is that God never says, and have this feast to remember Remember how I parted the Red Sea for you and how I saved you from the Egyptians. He never commands remembrance of the parting of the Red Sea as explicitly as he commands remembering the Passover and the unleavened bread. Isn't, isn't that interesting to you? So I would think that it's more significant to remember the parting of the Red Sea, some awesome epic moment that we make lots of movies about than the, the bread that didn't rise that we hid in our coat sleeves. Um, but God sees, uh, sees something more significant as himself, as, uh, as redeemer and provider. Um, this protector is just really a means to an end of final defeat of the Egyptians and of, of setting aside his people even further by uh, putting them into this territory headed towards Sinai where they'll gather and they'll worship him. And so God protects his people but maybe the moment that we make movies about uh, isn't the big moment for him. Um, we also see God as provider in the desert. He provides manna. He provides water. So he gives things for them to eat. They go out there with nothing in terms of food. They did not pack for the camping trip, especially for three million people. And they have water and they have food all along the journey. Um, and then they arrive at the foot of this mountain. And in Exodus chapter 19, it says this. Um, 
And this is where we'll stop in our journey in Exodus. But in Exodus chapter 19, it says in verse 1 through 8, On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell people of Israel, You yourselves have, been, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you out to myself. Now, therefore, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then verse 7, So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Moses had commanded them, or that the Lord had commanded him. In verse 8, The people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Um, so here's the interesting thing about this passage. is um, in, uh, in our culture, we miss a lot of this because we don't see, both we don't read ancient Hebrew and uh, we don't uh, have weddings uh, in the old Jewish style. But this picture and what's happening right here in this moment is God drawing a picture of a wedding celebration with his people. And so one of the things that he says is he says, Now therefore, if, in verse 5, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you should speak. These are God's wedding vows to his people. And the response of his people in verse 8, the people answered together and said, all the Lord has spoken we will do. That's the people's response of I do. And so the people gather before the mountain of God. Um, in Jewish tradition, there is, uh, they would put this covering over, and so you'd have this like kind of canopy covering thing at the wedding feast, and God stretches himself out as the canopy covering with a cloud over a mountain that, that we could read in later passages. But then God meets with his people there and says, you are mine and I am yours. Do you see the picture of God moving from revealing himself to them, saying, I am, to consecrating himself to them and them to him in marriage. He's defining the relationship along the way. Now, what happens to Israel? Um, they are about the worst imaginable cheating bride that you can think of. Um, on the honeymoon, so to speak, they cheat with another god. They build a golden calf while uh, God is making preparations for their life together. He's writing the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and they cheat on God on their figurative honeymoon. Uh, they continue to cheat on him repeatedly with other gods. And just by saying, I'm my own boss. I don't want any part of you. They eventually abandon God and he allows them to go into slavery and subjugation again in Babylon. 
But God promises all along the way from this beginning thing. He says, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples because, in verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Um, And this kingdom of priests, their purpose is to reveal God to the rest of the world. And so they do that by basically creating a pathway for God to send Jesus. Um, So God starts a new thing. God starts redefining the covenant. He starts redefining the relationship. The relationship has been broken and scarred. But God doesn't divorce and get remarried. He starts redefining the relationship all over again um, by recreating his people, by renewing them, by making them new, by defining them, by not the blood of the lamb in Exodus, but the blood of the lamb on the cross. And so God starts working uh, in the hearts uh, of people through Jesus. And then Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He pays the price for you and I, uh, the price that we could not pay. He redeems us. He liberates us from sin. He guides us with his Holy Spirit. He defends and protects us against the accusations of Satan that we read about in Romans uh, chapter 8. And then he provides for us. And in the end, he defines our relationship as us, the church, as his bride and we as his kingdom, his people. And in 1 Peter, um, Cheryl was reading, but later on in uh, chapter 2 it says, verse 9, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. Does this sound familiar from Exodus? You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're a people for his own possession. You're the people that God has consecrated for himself. You're the ones that God has set apart. You're the ones that God has done, uh, done all of this for. That you are chosen and that you, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so uh, God redefines this relationship and says, you have not received mercy, but now you have. You were not a people, but now you're mine. You are the priesthood that's going to reveal my glory to the world. So the response that we have to ask ourselves as we consider the close of Exodus is that we see this journey of God's people and how he's defining his relationship, but really what he's doing is setting a stage to prepare for us to understand his relationship with the church. And so God is preparing to define this new covenant, this new relationship, and he grafts his people into this covenant, and he uh, covers them, marks them by the blood of Jesus. And, and so our response as being marked by this new covenant, our response as being defined as the new firstborn, our response as being set apart as the new consecrated people is to do as God commanded. We respond at the end of God defining our 
relationship at the end of God leading us from this moment where we're just starting to get to know him, where we're starting to interact with him, we're starting to hang out and we're calling each other kind of friends that are chilling to we're starting to uh, realize who God is and how he's distinct from all others and how he's set apart and how he's amazing and glorious and great and awesome and good and gracious and we're starting to see how he is starting to distinguish us from apart from other people and then we're starting to say that you're the only one that I want and that God is saying I have chosen you I've set you apart and then we keep on moving more and more to where we're standing at this moment before God and God is saying you are my chosen people I am professing my love for you I'm making my commitment my undying commitment to you that I will be faithful to you as your figurative your husband And the response of the church in this moment as he places that wedding band on us is, I do. We will do everything that you say. The church has an opportunity because of the Holy Spirit with us to not be the cheating, sleazy bride that Israel was over and over and over again. We have this opportunity standing before God to say, by your grace, by your mercy, by your help, by your protection, by your provision, by your guidance, we will do all that you say. And so I think... uh, Chris has done a great job of revealing God and who he is and his glory and then revealing God in the symbolism of the Passover as our Redeemer that has paid the price for us, that has sacrificed himself for us, that has put himself in the place as the firstborn. We were the firstborns that were doomed to die in our sins and he put himself in our place. He redeemed us. He sacrificed himself in that place. And and so he's done a good job of painting the picture of all these things that God has done. And our response today as the church is we will do all that you say. I do. God has defined his relationship with us. And so um, we have that, that moment and that opportunity to receive or reject the definition. Um, and I urge you, plead with you, church, that we would walk with God in holiness and humility, receiving the identity that he gives us as his people, um, as his bride. Um, so we're going to close um, with some prayer and then some celebrating and rejoicing because um, Jesus has promised that he will come again to, to, um, uh, to make his dwelling place with us. And uh, so I want to invite you uh, to celebrate with us uh, as Chris is going to lead us in that closing. Let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you've defined us as your people, as your chosen people. We just ask that you would give us wisdom and grace as we move forward, uh, that you would help us to obey you and follow you. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.